Welcome to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel. Joined today, not by Chris Bouquet, but I'm here with Sarah Gregory and Ashley Laracy. You guys, I'm so excited to have you here. We're excited Thanks. to be here. <laughs> yes, okay. we are. So we were having a discussion offline and I was like, you know, we should probably just record this for the podcast because I feel like we were having a really awesome discussion. So I'm going to let you kick it off, Ashley. We were talking about life skills and I know you work with older students and so I'm sure this comes up a lot. And we were talking about the kind of the language that we use and sometimes the connotations that go around with that language. Um, So I'm going to let you kind of take the lead here and then we're all going to chime in and hopefully emulate the discussion that we were already having that was so awesome that we weren't recording, but we're going to record now. All right. I am happy to do that. So I think that, you know, we were just talking about this, this kind of term life skills and what does that really mean? You know, I hear it all the time in working in high school, um, working in transition programs. Um, I hear it from colleagues, you know, that talking about their students, like they're in a life skills classroom or they have a life skills curriculum. And I just think, you know, that that term I don't think it's well-defined. I think that I don't have a clear picture in my head. You know, maybe some people do, but I don't. (laughs) I don't have a clear picture in my head of what that means, you know, what a life skills classroom looks like. And really thinking about, you know, are the skills that we're targeting in a life skills classroom or in a life skills curriculum, are those really, you know, universal life skills that every single child in that classroom needs to be working on? Um, You know, thinking about things like, making a bed, right? Like I, I don't make my bed. <laughs> but don't, actually don't, that's don't, a really important life skill that everyone needs to have. I, I don't, I don't do it. I, I don't. Right. But that's my choice, right? That's my choice that it's, it's, I have the autonomy and I have the agency to get to decide that that's something that I want to work on or that I don't want to work on. And so I don't know. It's just, it's something that's been on my mind. And I think it's something that probably applies to other areas of our field. When we think about, you know, words and, you know, what the true definitions of those words really are. And, you know, is that, is that universally kind of understood amongst our colleagues? I think one issue too, with that is that a lot of times we say life skills and kind of mean that in opposition of sort of traditional academic things like reading, writing, and math. Um, I actually just had a conversation with a colleague today about a student's placement. And right now they're in general education. And they said, well, I feel like the team is really thinking that this student needs more life skills. And so again, I was like, well, what do you mean by that? Cause like you said, Ashley, there's not like a really clear definition or clear picture of that. And I was kind of got me thinking like, so are you saying he doesn't need the things that he's learning right now in gen ed? Because I would disagree with that. I also think that it carries this heavy weight kind of similar to what you're saying, Sarah, around, well, we've given up on academics, right? We've given up on all the things. And now we have to transition to this thing called life skills because, you know, we've had no success with academics. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where it becomes problematic, right? And that's where we kind of have this negative connotation that is spun with it, that is so loaded with information. um, But does it have to be, right? And can we use different language um, instead of relying on, you know, again, this language that's that's heavy loaded. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways problematic because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another term that really comes to mind, you know, is these terms that, you know, I, I don't hear as much anymore, 
thankfully, but these terms that, you know, high functioning and low functioning, you know, that doesn't do, those terms are, are hurtful. They're not useful, but they also do nothing that, they do nothing for me to tell me what do their skill sets look like? What are their support needs? Where, you know, where do we need to kind of be focusing our energy and our time um, as far as supporting that learner? Um, so that's just, you know, again, these terms that we kind of throw around in our field sometimes that just don't, they don't, they aren't clearly defined and just not helpful in helping us see the big picture. And it is interesting how different people are going to have like put different connotations to those things. Like even thinking about life skills, I'm thinking, well, we all need life skills. And like you said, Ashley, all we're going to have different things that are important to us and that we want to learn how to do, but it's not like only disabled students need the all quote unquote life skills. Um, and that like some students need one type of skill and another set of students would need a different type of skill just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we all learn life skills, right? Like it just like feels very interesting that the, you know, special needs community has adopted this idea of life skills and life skills, classrooms and all of this, you know, because it's such a general term that like is not, it's general in, you know, when we're thinking about it, but again, it's like very specific because of all of the you know, connotations that go alongside of it. So I think it's just, yeah, it's challenging and, and problematic. So then the question becomes, what do we do about it? Like, how do we, how do we use better language or what, you know, when we're going into that life skills classroom or we're talking to a family about life skills uh, or what's happening in those classrooms and how we're supporting students, like, what does that conversation look like? How do we kind of change this? Yeah. I, I don't know. I think that that's, I think it's a really good question because I think that, you know, we could maybe use more specific language to talk about the things that we are working on. I think that could be one kind of push. I think another push could be to really kind of redefine what some of these terms mean. Um, when I, you know, I think this is something that I shared earlier when we were talking about this is, you know, when I think about literacy, you know, Karen Erickson, right. She, she says like literacy is a life skill. And when she talks about, you know, literacy, she talks about it and she'll say, I use a very narrow definition of literacy. I I'm talking about reading and writing using print or braille. Um, so, you know, some people might say that they're quote unquote doing literacy in their classrooms, but again, that if it's not matching that narrow kind of definition, and we're not really clear about what that means, um, you know, maybe, maybe they aren't, you know, doing authentic, uh, meaningful, you know, literacy instruction for students. So I don't know. I mean, what, what do you guys think? I was just going to say that, Ashley, you know, you've presented on this. And one thing you talked about was finding out what's important to an individual. And so if making the bed is really important to somebody, then like, sure, let's work. Let's teach that skill. Let's communicate about it. Um, and like the coffee cart might be really interesting and motivating to somebody. And it might be something that they see as a future career. So then like, yeah, let's go ahead and work on it. But for some kids aren't really going to care about the coffee cart. And so, you know, do we need to be pushing that just because we've determined you we're tracking you for this life skills curriculum and deciding that you're not going to be learning sort of more stuff in the content areas. Yeah. It I think also, a lot of it, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. You go, Ashley. I was just thinking a lot of that, like it's, it's all in underneath this kind of umbrella of 
person-centered planning. And so when I think about that, I think about, okay, we have to think about what is important for the individuals, but like, right, what skills do they need to be able to do these things as, you know, in, in their adult life, you know, and focusing really on this idea of like interdependence, it's not necessarily independence. It's they, you know, they might be interdependent on a big group of people, you know, as an adult and that's okay, but do they, are they able to kind of direct their care and talk about the things that they want that are important to them? But then also, you know, not only are we thinking about what's important for them, but what's important to them. I think of it like as this balance, right? So we need to think about the things that, you know, they need to be able to do, you know, to be more as successful, but then we can't forget about all the things that are important to them. And I think that's unfortunately what happens sometimes is as educators, and I've definitely been guilty of it myself, that I spend way too much time thinking about the four and not important, not as much time. And thinking about what's important to that person and how how you can even you know leverage those skills and work on them both at the same time. I love that. I love that distinction. I think that's really important. And you know, I think that we lose track of that. I think that parents and families are oftentimes pushing for that four, right? Like I need them to be safe and I need them to have all those things, which is definitely true. But especially when we're thinking about communication and that, you know, development, we really have to focus on what's important to an individual. Um, and I think that one of the amazing things that's come out of the neurodiversity affirming movement has been really focusing in on the things that are important to, you know, neurodiverse individuals, as an example. Um, and I think that, you know, talking about specific curiosities and, you know, making sure that we're supporting that, but also not intruding into that um, is just kind of what's coming to mind right now. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if we're trying to teach students how to communicate using AAC, we have to focus on what's important to them in order to get to, you know, the for them. Um, because ultimately, like it, it starts with intrinsic motivation. And I think that, you know, as much as we want to teach them all these things, it has to be intrinsically motivating in order for them to be successful in that. So I think that's a really great kind of way to frame it. Yeah. Another term that I think I've you know, heard thrown around a lot is this idea of functional communication, which I think is, again, a little loaded um, with some negative connotations around it. Um, and then it's also so broad, like, shouldn't all of our communication be functional at some level? Like, it's just like, it's one of those things that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you actually sit down and think about it. Life skills, functional communication. Um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think that, again, it's like another one of these terms that we use very commonly in our field, but we don't all have a shared definition of. And so I think sometimes functional communication might be used to sort of describe like a lower bar for our kids of like, if they can get their wants and needs met, um, but it might not, you that somebody might not use that to describe like really like generative, spontaneous, independent, unique language. So exactly like you said, Rachel, we all want to be functional communicators and hopefully we are communicating these ideas in a functional way right now. Um, but I think that that's a term that can sometimes have a negative connotation, maybe accidentally because we don't have a shared definition. And I think part of it is also like the idea that 
we've given up on like, you know, any other type of communication that's beyond a basic function, right? Beyond just getting our, our basic wants and needs met. And I mean, I do think that's problematic, um, you know, thinking through that lens. And I think that I think this kind of whole conversation, just if we zoom out for a second, like we're talking about kind of these, this language that we use and, you know, how it's weighted in all of these, you know, connotations around it. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's the problem with it isn't necessarily the language, but it's really just the weight underneath it, which is I'm giving up on, you know, academic skills. I'm giving up on, you know, more advanced language skills. And I think that that's where it's really challenging, um, you know, with these with these kind of umbrella terms that we hear thrown around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And exactly like Ashley said, with life skills, like that doesn't tell me what's happening in a classroom. If you say I'm working on functional communication with a student, that actually doesn't tell me anything about what you're doing either. Like what is the um, what utterance length are you working on? What is the specific vocabulary? Um, What pragmatic functions are you working on? Um, So I think that you know, there could be many different definitions for what functional means. And if all we're saying is functional, we're really not understanding what's happening or what's being targeted. Yeah. I think, I think being more specific to me, I think makes more sense, you know, and even being really specific with families and with teams, you know, and talking about maybe instead of saying things like, you know, we're working on functional communication, being really specific about the skills that we are working on and then explaining why these are functional skills, right? It is functional for them to be working on these self-advocacy advocacy skills because, you know, we want them to be able to, to advocate for themselves effectively in a variety of different situations or, or whatever the skill is that we are working on. But, you know, those are, those are truly functional skills. And I think that maybe if we frame it, you know, by being really clear and explicit with what we're working on and then making that connection, I think maybe that helps to clarify the definition for, for families and teams. The other thing is, I feel like when I hear functional communication, I think of requesting (laughs) and that's Mm -hmm. all I think about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that's problematic, right? Like we know Mm -hmm. that kids will learn how to request things, right? It's usually where they start learning how to communicate. And unfortunately, if we're only working on quote unquote functional communication, that's my, that might be where it ends. Uh, there's so many different other reasons and purposes for language that our kids never get exposed to. They never get modeling of how to comment and how to tell a joke and, you know, all the other reasons that we use language. And so I, yeah, I have a, I definitely have a negative connotation with the idea of functional communication because I'm like, why are we working on that? Like we need to be working on all the other things that kids don't get exposed to and they don't have opportunities to to learn and practice. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot behind that word functional because I think, you know, the three of us as SLPs, I think we're all thinking about functional communication, but I see all the time teachers talking about functional academics. And that to me is just very, it's very, there's a very interesting combination of terms, right? Like- <laughs> What is, what is functional academics? Um, you know, what, what does that mean? What, what is the difference between what is the opposite of functional academics? Is it non-functional academics? So just good question. Ooh, these are all very good questions to ponder. Yeah. Yeah, Or is the opposite of functional communication, non-functional communication, because that is often not how people are using it. Right. If a lot of people are saying functional communication to mean requesting, that is the opposite of that everything but requesting um it's it's confusing and poorly defined 
we don't have all the answers. We're here <laughs> to help you think about these things. If you have an answer, you can always reach out to us at talkingwithtech at gmail.com. Uh, thank you ladies so much for coming on to just chat this out. I felt like it was a great topic for the podcast and it just so happens that Chris is out of town right now. So it was lovely having you ladies come on and share your ideas. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks Rachel. Thank you guys so much. I'm super excited to share an interview I did with Nanny Ott. They shared about getting diagnosed as autistic later on in life. They have two children who are also autistic. So very excited to head into the interview I did with Nanny Ott. If you enjoy Talking With Tech, we could use your help in spreading the word about the podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. The more positive reviews the podcast gets, the easier it becomes for others to find it. The more people who find the podcast, the more the word spreads about how to effectively consider and implement AAC. And who doesn't want that? If that sounds good to you, please take a moment and give the podcast a quick review. We'd so very much appreciate it. Now, let's get back into the episode. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Nanny Ott. Nanny, I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, pleased to be here. So just start off by telling your listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a blogger for Autistic Village, where I explain how autistic brains work and how to work with autistic brains. Um, I'm a parent of an amazing autistic adult. Some of my parenting was okay. Some of my parenting was good and some of it was really bad. <laughs> um, if we have conversations with my young adult, she will list you all of the bad things. Yeah. Some of the good too. But yeah, she, she yeah, they never, they never let me miss a single mistake. <laughs> yeah. I think that many uh, parents would say something probably similar if they have a young adult. Um, and it's just like, we have to just kind of keep evolving and growing. Right. And yeah. I think parenting but is... I, I, I was lucky because, um, even as a child, they pulled me up every time. Mm -hmm. No, you don't do that. It's not okay to shout at me. Yeah. I won't accept that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So Nanny, tell us a little bit about your autism diagnosis. Uh, I know that you got diagnosed as an adult, which I think is a really unique experience to share and talk about. And I know that, you know, with social media being so accessible and people's voices being able to be heard, uh, we're hearing from a lot of adults that they got diagnosed later in life. Um, so I'd love for you to share your experience with that. Yeah, I I was identified um, when I was doing teacher training, and it was uh, my um, mentor at the time who went, uh, I think you may have autism. Mm -hmm. And I went, nope. I'm thinking Brain Man. I'm thinking Sheldon. Um, and even though I had worked and got on really well with autistic students, the penny didn't drop. Mm. And I mean, even, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> and it, you know, but it was during the identification process and we're talking about childhood and they said, well, when did you start to speak? And I said, well, it was a really late speaker. I was about four. Um, I said nothing. I had, I had one word until about four, which was no, everything <laughs> was no. Um, and 
you know, tested for hearing and the doctors finally decided that um, I was um, mentally deficient. He said, he said, he said the responsiveness of a turnip. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Um, and put, put her in an institution um, and start your family again. Wow. That's, and what, what year was that approximately? So that's, that's, that's in the early seventies. Okay. And my parents went, my child's not disabled, Mm. which not quite the right response, but a better response than okay, bye kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, you, you win. Um, and so, you know, there's, and then if you look back, there is, there was, and I started talking about sort of things and they said, you know, what this, and they just said, how, how did nobody at any point in your life go, you're autistic? Well, I mean, they said, you know, you have autism um, mm-hmm. or, um, and then they, they said, you know, okay, we'll, we'll write you down as Asperger's because England. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it took a while to come to terms with it because it turned out that the university was not doing it for support, but to confirm their fears. Mm. And the only support they wanted to do was support me out the door. Yikes. And this was, this was the place that you worked. This was, this was, yeah, this is where I was doing teacher training. I, I'd already taught for over a year. Mm. Um, and because I'd done so well, we had the best results, um, that, that, you know, that class had had, um, for 10 years. Mm. Wow. And because of that, I was asked to do teacher training and that's when it went all wrong because the people who ran the course, um, said that autistics can't be teachers. Wow. And so, I mean, of course, then the diagnosis felt like, well, it's affecting my livelihood too, like not being yeah. able to I mean, work. I, I, yeah. And I said, you know, I, I got the qualification, but the, the reference that they wrote um, ensured I could never get a post. Wow. And so then, then tell me more. Tell me this. So, well, I mean, I, I did, I did um, manage to get somebody else to do a reference for me mm-hmm. and get some teaching work. But I couldn't cope with the behaviorism in the schools. Mm. I couldn't cope with the fact that instead of understanding the children in your care, you're supposed to punish them for things they can't help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk all about that in detail in a second. So (laughs) that's that's when I thought, I I can't stay in this system. I've got got to go. Mm -hmm. And um, I had some illness at the time. Sort of shortly after that, I had some illness that forced me onto the couch for an, over a year. Mm. And it gave me time to finally actually find out what being autistic might actually mean for me. And what because did you find? That. And this is when I started finding out what other people's experiences were. And the penny started to drop about a lot of things like anxiety and depression that I'd had all my life mm-hmm. that I didn't need to have. Yeah that they were purely caused by my de- me deliberately damaging my nervous system over and over and over again, trying mm. to be something I wasn't. Mm. Yeah. And like, I know that autistic adults talk a lot about masking and how 
challenging it is to kind of be in a society where um, you have to change the way that you are to kind of fit uh, in. And then there's educators that are, you know, trying to, yeah. sh- to shift that too. I mean, I was, you know, I, 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 one of my careers was a dresser and actors after two hours on stage come off absolutely soaked in sweat. They're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Make that 16 hours for autistics. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. And I didn't, it didn't, I hadn't heard the term chameleoning. I hadn't realized I was doing it. I hadn't realized that why my personality changed so strongly when I was too exhausted to mask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. None yeah. of it. And it, it was just, it was just, oh, And it just, and then I had to learn to be me, um, which took time. Mm-hmm. And, but the funny thing was when I was learning to be me and other people were earlier in the road than I was now. And I was saying, okay, this is what helped me. And they went, oh my goodness, that's really helped me too. Mm. And eventually someone said, you really should do a blog about this and that's how come autistic village amazing happened <laughs> yeah and it's so i think it's it's such a great resource to have the ability to hear other people's perspectives that really you can identify with. Um, and that sense of, oh my gosh, someone else is experiencing this too. Like, it's not just me. I think that oftentimes we feel like we're alone. And when we hear other people's experiences that we share, it just gives a sense of community and belonging that I think as human beings, we all need. Oh, absolutely. And as autistics, we don't get Mm -hmm. as most of our lives, we don't get that connection. We don't get to belong. We get to stand on the sidelines and just hope we don't make the mistake that gets us shoved out. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so to find the autistic community where I fit was everything. Mm. And and how, what was the kind of transition? So it sounds like you had a diagnosis and then you were starting to kind of learn all about autism and identifying with people's experiences. And then you tried to kind of then share the knowledge, right? Um, and yeah. pass it along. And that's how Autistic Village was kind of the genesis of that, right? Was that yeah. we should have this on the internet somewhere where it's widely accessible and people can find it from all over. Um, and so what, how, what was that timeline? Like how long did that kind so, of all take? Well, from, I mean, basically I had a, you know, I had a year where I wasn't able to be very physically active mm-hmm. and um, I am a trained researcher, doctorate, um, so I used my research techniques to figure it out because I wanted, I wanted to find out whether it was, a, you know how sometimes you grab at things because you want it to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want, I wanted to be sure what was me, what was autistic traits, what was uh, myth. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing research and it it took me about four years of research um, and doing the analysis and putting all of these autistic voices together Mm -hmm. to get the shape. 
Wow. Yeah. Since we're kind of talking all about Autistic Village, um, I know that that kind of expanded to include other autistic voices. Um, So can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, Autistic Village started um, because actually it was another autistic who wanted to do a blog, but didn't want to do the tech and didn't want to do um, the, you know, and I said, well, I don't know if I can do and write enough or if I have anything interesting enough to say um, by myself, but you, you know, you were a great writer. I'd be, I'd love to have you, uh, you know, would, would, how about we work together? And so that's mm-hmm. how we started out and me and Nikki um, started off and then uh, Nikki was offered a great post doing something else and, you know, no time. Mm, I so, know, I know and, the feeling. <laughs> you know, and we had the same. You know, we had a few other people who joined and who 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 came and left. Same thing that, um, what because I'm older, I'm less out of life, as it were. So I don't. Life doesn't tend to pull me back out again. Mm-hmm. Whereas for other people, they've got a whole lot of other commitments, mm-hmm. and to keep a blog going is a lot. It's a lot of. A lot of time, a lot of commitment, a lot of work. And uh, um, I mean, even with me not getting pulled away, I still had a, there's still been quite a lot of radio silence for the last two years because um, it started doing well and I panicked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It <laughs> can be overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a similar experience when we started doing this podcast, which was over five years ago. I mean, no one really knew about it. And the moment it started, like I started seeing people share episodes and seeing our download numbers. I was like, oh, wait, like this is not just a a me thing anymore. Like people are really having access to this. And it definitely puts an extra pressure on you to know that like it's making an impact. And that feels really great at some level, but it also puts more pressure on building that content and making sure it's, you know, resonating and all those things. So I can totally relate to that. And so, you know, then I've sort of since then went on and got some coaching and realized that if I'm going to, you know, you, you've got to have people, you you need to have people to support you need to have people around. You can't do it solo. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to have that, then I need to be earning, which is why we started up inside out, which is the training side of the program. Yes. Um, and I mean, as a teacher, I got a salary. Mm-hmm. I got of paid my expertise. <laughs> as a lecturer, I got paid as a salary. Yep. You know, everyone else, if you have expertise, you get paid for it. Why autistics feel that they shouldn't mm-hmm. um, is we should never be made to feel that we shouldn't be asked. You know, we, we should be giving away our knowledge for free. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you can't get paid, you can't do it. There's only a certain amount of time you can do something for free until then you can't do it anymore. And so you need to have some type of income so that you're able to do more of it, you know? So, okay. So let's shift gears for a second. You know, I think you're hearing about your experience is really um, super valuable to our listeners. And I'm really excited to have you on here all about it. Um, I feel like we have a really great opportunity here to talk about, you know, what types of things that you, what types of advice and wisdom you would give to parents, especially we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. We also have a lot of educators. Um, but what would you say, um, you know, when you're thinking about supporting autistic students, knowing all the experiences that you had, you know, growing up and then, you know, getting that diagnosis later, um, what best piece of advice would you give? 
Um, I think the best advice is listen to your child. Mm -hmm. When they say no, there's a reason. They mm -hmm. may not know the reason because they're a child and they haven't spent years studying neuroscience. Right. <laughs> um, they just know they have a bad feeling and that bad feeling means no. Mm -hmm. And that bad feeling is a very good, strong signal that something is up, that something is damaging the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to it and respect it, they will thrive. Mm -hmm. If you tell them to ignore it, and it's not that bad, and nobody else is having a problem, they will not thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And a lot of a lot of the students that educators who are listening to this podcast and also parents are non-speaking. And so I think it also extends to when a child is showing you that they don't oh, want yeah. to do something and that they're not okay. When that nonverbal communication. Away, when they turn their head and Mm -hmm. There is loads of non-speaking signals. Mm -hmm. um, one I loved was this um, in parent advice on AAC. And they said, um, they're doing training mm -hmm. and my child keeps hitting purple, but there's no purple pieces in the puzzle. Why, why do they keep doing that? And I said, mm -hmm. because go away, you're annoying me, isn't on the AAC. <laughs> Because <laughs> we haven't programmed that phrase in yet. <laughs> um, so she's deliberately picking the non-color over and over again mm -hmm. to tell you she is not interested. This is not mm -hmm. a game she wants to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And also, you know, thinking about what you just said, we really need to prioritize self-advocacy with our students in general, but especially our AAC kids, because they rely on us to program the vocabulary and the phrases and all those things and do the teaching that's necessary. Um, so I'm, I've always been a big advocate for giving kids language to protest. No, stop. I don't like that. Um, things like that. So they're able to advocate for what they need in yeah. whatever moment to be regulated. Yeah. And to, to make sure that teachers don't take it away again. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you gaffer taped a speaking child's mouth, every authority would be on you. Yeah. So don't take an AAC child's words away. Mm -hmm. Speaking on the subject of AAC, um, we've had a lot of autistic adults on this podcast who are part-time AAC users. So they talk about sometimes verbal speech is hard to access um, or they just can communicate more clearly with AAC through typing and all these modalities. Uh, I'm curious what your experience has been. Um, yeah, I use, I use an app called emergency chat. Um, it's quite clunky, um, mm -hmm. but it, it gives me when I'm overwhelmed, um, my dyspraxia really kicks in, mm. which means my motor, my motor planning is kaput. Mm -hmm. So being able to form words, is off the table. Yeah. Um, typing is doable. Um, it's a lot easier because it's one finger and my whole hand is moving basically. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means that when I type it, rather than, talk, than them talking over me, they then have to read it. Um, and then they have to respond. 
Mm-hmm. And it buys that typing buys me the time to put it to put my. Um, I tend to think in shapes and pictures, so to translate it into words mm. and communicate um, with it. Um, but people, yeah, people sometimes do, and they, you know. Um, I've had a situation where someone did something very disrespectful and I was upset and I said it was not okay. So they took my phone away. Oh my gosh. And that was horrendous. Yeah. I lost my voice. And that's me as a highly educated, this is me as a highly educated adult, but this nurse in hospital um, felt I was being disrespectful, so she taught me a lesson. That's crazy. Be- because I was on the bed in the hospital, I couldn't reach. You know, she put it out of reach, and I couldn't get it. Man, that's like really like horrible to listen to. And it didn't. It didn't even occur to her how what a terrible thing she'd done. Mm. Yeah. Um, and how often does that happen to our students, right? Like and that's the, it with students. You know, the iPad gets taken away. The, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you can't you can't regulate. So I'm going to take away your communication, right? Which is like the one thing that students need in those moments yeah. to be able to somehow communicate what is going on in their body and what we can do to help them. Yeah, not not least know and go away. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, such good points. Oh, I love this. Um, tell me a little bit about, let's talk about behaviorism. We kind of referenced it in the beginning yeah. and I know you have a lot of thoughts on it and I know, you know, it's, it's controversial in a sense. Um, but we're listening to a lot of autistic adults and they're sharing their experiences and their thoughts on it. So I'm really curious, um, for you to share. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the frustrating things because it's everywhere. And so mm-hmm. people normalize it. But when I grew up, people hit kids and it was normal. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't a good parent if you didn't hit your kid. I mean, and now we listen to that and think, what? Yeah. Are you serious? Um, you know, it, in what stage is, is assaulting a child? <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Um, and this is where we're at with behaviorism is, is in, you know, because people were still not able to let go of the idea you need that children, you know, this is this sort of, I mean, apologies to any Christian listeners, but it is that Christian teaching that children are born bad and that you need to train them to be good. You must coerce them into being good. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are still struggling to let go of that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas actually research has shown children, I mean, it's basic survival instinct. If you hurt or upset the person who is protecting you, you are going to die on the mountain. They will yeah. leave you out there to die. Mm-hmm. It is bad survival. So children will do anything to get it right. Mm-hmm. If they're not getting it right, they don't know how. Yeah. 
And I've worked with a lot of students who have severe anxiety about not getting it right to the point where they just freeze. And then it's like, oh, well, they're, they're not compliant. And I'm like, it's just like, it's crazy to hear things like that because it's like, we've created a system in a situation where there's a right and a wrong. And now we have building anxiety in our students who just want to do the right thing. They want to get it right, but they need help and support. And then, you know, when they don't do it and they freeze because of their nervous system, right. Then all of a sudden they're just not complying. And it builds, it builds a bad thing. I mean, I had, I had a good chat with one 16 year old who um, couldn't stay in class. Um, And he was known as a terror of the school. And I spoke to him and said, what's going on? First time anyone actually asked that. Everyone had told him what he shouldn't be doing. Mm. No one had asked him why he was doing it. And he said, honestly, miss, I do it to amuse myself because what's the point? Everyone knows I'm a failure. Everyone knows I'm a loser. I've got no chance anyway, so why shouldn't I just make myself happy? Oh, it's so sad. Said, these, these people are mean and they deserve everything they get. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like and there's that, probably... That's a, lot of, that's a lot of 16-year-olds out there who are doing that, and that's because of behaviorism. Mm -hmm. because if they had said when he was in primary why are you struggling how can we help you how can we take down those barriers Mm -hmm. he would be thriving he would be interested in stuff he would feel he had a future i mean 16 and no future how's how is that how how are we allowing that to happen yeah and i and i I'm thinking about, you know, students with complex communication needs, students who are non-speaking, they're even more vulnerable because they don't have the language skills yet to mm. communicate those things. And so it's just this like really dangerous situation that we're in when, you know, we're not, uh, we're not supporting students to be able to communicate what they need and how they feel and all those things. Um, and then we're having communication be taught as a behavior, right? Which is just super problematic. Mm. And, you know, in addition, if you are a praxic, your body quite often decides to do things you had no plan for. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes close to you, that hand will come flicking out. You didn't do any direction to that. Mm-hmm. You had no intention of, you know, you're just watching that hand go and going, you're doing what now? Mm-hmm. Um, or echolalia, where you know you do have some speech, but people assume that they have said a word and you repeated it back, but that's confirmation. And it's just your brain doing a reflect. Mm-hmm. I think we oftentimes see that with some of our students using AAC too, when they kind of hit the same button over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's it's kind of no different than that echolalia and the and it, and it can be stims. Mm-hmm. And it can be stints and it sounds good. Um, it can be the joy of finding the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I remember driving my parents absolutely crazy because I, I was an early reader, but I didn't realize that letters made words. Mm. I thought words were a whole block thing. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy you shared that. I want to like and, do a deep dive into that. <laughs> and so, so I was, I was, you know, then, then I, I went to school and I found out they were actually made of letters. 
And I, so I just kept playing this game. What does GTP spell? What does PGY um, spell? What does DOG spell? That spells dog. Oh my goodness, I have found a word. Yeah. And so for a week, I then asked, what does DOG spell? I knew what DOG spelled, but I was so excited. I had found this word and I had created this word and I wanted confirmation over and over and over again that I got this word. Wow. We just went on loop. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about a specific student who has a very specific interest with ceiling fans. He loves ceiling fans. And every time I see him, he says, do you have a ceiling fan? He knows, he knows I have a ceiling fan, but he's so excited to talk about it. And I feel like it's like very similar, right? He's kind of on loop. And, and now yeah. I think it's been part of our, it's part of our routine, right? Like, it's like, well, I see Rachel and then I ask her if she has a ceiling fan and she says, and she tells me about the ceiling fan. Exactly. Exactly. And I know this is a safe route of conversation and I have my script and I'm safe. Yeah. And this is good. Yeah. She likes it. I like it. We're good. I love that you mentioned we, I have a script and I'm safe because I feel like oftentimes we don't think about that. We don't think about scripting as a child's safety um, in a com communication interaction. And again, from listening to autistic adults, we know that conversation, because it can turn every which way, can feel very stressful at times, um, especially if you don't know you know, about a certain subject or you have a preferred subject that you like talking about. Um, and so I love that you said that script feels safe. Um, can you share a little bit about your own experience there with yeah, this idea I mean, of a script? I, I mean, I, you know, I spent a lot of time watching people and stuff and I watched, I mean, I, I learned how people spoke and I followed their conversations and I learned how conversation worked. And I said, I think in shapes and patterns and things, which isn't you can't communicate that, mm -hmm. you know, it's like describing to a blind person what the color blue looks like. Yeah. Um, so I had to learn phrases that fit the shapes in my head and I listened and I built the phrases and I would try them out and people would respond in the way I wanted them to respond or they didn't. Mm. And if they responded right, then that script stayed. If they said, well, I don't get you, okay, rewrite that now. I need to rebuild that. I need to use new blocks to build the shape again for you. Um, but also, you know, I observed that, I mean, I'm, I made a slight mistake at school. When I went into school, um, small talk in my, in my family was they used to discuss a lot, you know, this is, you know, this was quite a rough time in the seventies and people discussed a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. And so I came in with those scripts to school mm -hmm. and was asking other six year olds who they thought should be the next prime minister. Oh man. It didn't yeah. go well. <laughs> What's a prime minister. <laughs> and I was, I was completely lost because I had no, I had no way of connecting or communicating with people, with my peers. I had no, um, I had no building blocks. Mm. Um, they said, let's play with dolls. And I tried to take the doll apart because that's what was interesting to me about a doll. Right. 
Yeah, you don't take other people's dolls apart. That's a bad, bad thing to do. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that's what you heard. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they. But no one explained this stuff to me. No one explained any of this, and so I learned to be the child in the corner, mm-hmm. and I would watch. I never interacted. I just watch, and I would watch, and I would learn, and I would watch, and I'd try and figure it all out. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was always told, "Yeah, you're not walking right. You're not talking right. Stop walking on your toes. Um, don't interrupt people." And I'm trying to think. Well, how do I know when it's my turn? Mm. I've mm. no idea. Mm. Whereas, of course, if you've got scripts. And there is a there is a known back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like you know. I mean, the majority do it too. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. Mm-hmm. And you. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, I know. And you are already halfway down the corridor by the time you finish that script. Mm-hmm. Neither is looking at each other. Neither is actually interested. Mm-hmm. But that's. That's social script that you do to keep safe and familiar. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just learned. So I learned these scripts. I learned how to, you know, um, and, you know, I. the funniest was um, my scripts for identifying people because I have face blindness. I can't, um, I facial agnosia. Mm-hmm. I can't recognize people very well. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody has a really distinctive feature, I am so excited. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. so I learned to have this script for knowing people. Mm-hmm. You know, so hi, how's it going? And usually, you know, you hope that they go beyond fine, but they probably won't. Um, and then you go, how's the family? And hope they drop a name in. Yeah, that's my you know, oh yes, Sarah's Sarah's doing fantastic now. Yeah, Bob's in school now. Giving context. Great. Great. Now I've got you. Now I know exactly who you are. Mm. If that didn't work, so how's work? <laughs> yeah, some more clues. So what's 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 the new project you're working on? Yeah. Now now they will tell me a bit about what they're doing in work. Now I've got a context again. Wow. Um, and most of the time that works. Yeah. And, you know, then the name will drop into place and I'll know who they are. Um, sometimes, um, it doesn't. Um, the funniest was, um, this, um, there's a guy called Ryan Tuberty who is very famous in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And my brain went, this is this, this person's familiar. You know this person. So we went through the whole script. Yeah. Now he meets millions of people. He has obviously doesn't want to upset his fans by saying he doesn't know who they are. Right. So he is going through the same script too. Wow. And we sort of walk away, both still clueless about who the other person was. Oh, man. And my friend goes, oh, my goodness, I didn't know you knew Ryan Tuberty. And I went, ah. That'll be it, Ted. <laughs> wow. This is so wild. I'm so excited that you're sharing this. And it just 
I'm having anxiety just listening to you to talk about these experiences. Like, cause we've all been in a situation where we're like, Oh, who is this person? Like, I know I'm supposed to know them and know their name, but like, I can't quite pinpoint it. Like that's yeah. anxiety producing for anyone. I so- mean, my father, my, my, my father's favorite, um, he, he has his own script, um, in social situations. Mm-hmm. Um, he will call my mom over. Mm-hmm. Um, and go, hi, meet. And he will just pause. And that person will fill in the name. It's genius. <laughs> I love it. Wow. Smart. Um, but yeah, he's, but again, same thing. He, he is the same facial agnosia. So he, he struggles. Um, he said it was very embarrassing on the playground because he was sent to pick up kids. And he had to hope he picked the right one up. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, we're talking about kind of conversational skills and social pragmatics and things like that. I'm curious um, if you could share a little bit about social skills, social pragmatics. You know, we're listening to autistic adults and thinking through a neurodiversity affirming lens, right? Like, how do we actually, as educators, teach autistic? children without pushing them into masking and things like that? I I think, I mean, for me, it's the guidebook. Mm -hmm. Um, If I go to visit Japan, I will learn the basics of the language. I will Mm -hmm. learn their customs. Mm -hmm. I will learn how they work. And I will also apologize to them when, or explain to them when how I am is different to how they are. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a little, I mean, for us, it's, it's not so much that, but we shouldn't be, you know, as, as, you know, we're not visitors. Mm-hmm. We're, we should be part of the community. So it is more that this is how the majority work. Mm-hmm. So here are some pitfalls that you could accidentally walk into. Mm-hmm. Um, it is well worth your time explaining to them that you're going to fall into it. Mm. So I now don't bother with eye contact and I will tell people up front. Um, I know you've been told that no eye contact means shifty and everything else, but actually I find it very overwhelming to do eye contact. So um, because I know and trust you, um, I'm not going to do that with you. Mm. Is that okay? I love that. Just being really direct and honest and open. And, you know, and again, you know, I, I can't queue up for conversations. So, um, friends cue me now. I tell them I can't queue. And I said, if I don't know where the space is to be able to contribute, I will interrupt because I don't know where to go. Whereas if you go, Hey, what's your thought? Mm. You give me that space to come in. Mm. You don't leave me behind. Wow. And I'm just thinking again, in through a educator lens, like how can we help support our students with those peer relationships like that, um, to help them, you know, in a way that's natural and not super intimidating. And, and, you know, educators should be teaching the majority about autistic expression too. Yeah. Um, 
and not in a not in a oh autistics don't like eye contact mm -hmm. because that's not true um and it's not right um there is times when i don't uh there you know there is time you know if you want deep connection but again i find eye contact is a very deep intimate connection so mm -hmm. only my very very closest circle mm -hmm. i mean if you grabbed a private part of me that's eye contact for me wow it's that's... that level of assault yeah and i am forced to submit to that level of assault with people I don't know, hmm. because that is the social expectation. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure that really resonates. Um, I think that was a good metaphor because I feel like that's like really powerful. And so, you know, it's it's understanding that it, it's not it is not a reasonable expectation. Uh, if somebody says I don't want to do eye contact, is not a reasonable expectation to insist on it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, and so you know, and it's learning is teach. So teachers teaching that if somebody says no, there's a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, respect it. Mm -hmm. If somebody gets something wrong, it's almost certainly not intentional. Mm -hmm. So take the time to explain what was wrong and why it upsets you. Mm. What would you say when, you know, we're working with students who don't have the language skills yet to kind of really clearly communicate? Well, again, is to, is to, if you're not sure, ask a teacher. If you mm -hmm. think something, someone's done something mean, talk to a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and the teacher will be better able to interpret for you. Yeah. What's actually going on? Mm -hmm. Don't assume that somebody's me. Yeah. Yeah, because, I think. I mean, I mean, one of the big ones that we had in school, you know, is, you know, especially in primary, you get, I read it from parents all the time, is somebody, the person who wants to be a friend gets right into your space mm -hmm. because closeness equals friendship. For an autistic, that is very, very invasive. And so very likely, even though they want to be your friend, they will push you away mm. because they need to clear you a little bit further away for their personal comfort. And it's a lot quicker to do a quick push. And as you said, you don't have the, you know, when you're younger, you don't have the words. You're mm -hmm. too close. Bye. Right. And they're not pushing you away as a friend. They need you to back up. Mm -hmm. go away just give space yeah yeah i mean do you i mean i don't know if you remember this you know primary school being taught the bubble rule where you have to hold your arms out and <laughs> yep yep yeah because that's developmentally you know that's the developmental thing you know children need to learn that space mm -hmm. and um but for autistics that's a very threatening is not just uncomfortable it's threatening and so therefore you're going to get a much bigger response. Mm. And so teaching, you know, teachers teaching that to do that and say, look, just respect yeah. space, do 
right? Really priming students to understand yeah. that. And, and I think. Know, and teachers need to do their own education because most teachers do not understand how autistics work. That is unfortunately very accurate too. And uh, all educators, therapists, and even parents, you know, don't really understand oftentimes. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to share this podcast episode because I think it's so oh, insightful. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's why the behaviorism is such a problem with the cause. Because, you know, behaviorism says we want to deal with the effect. Mm -hmm. So basically what they're saying is um, I accidentally stand on your foot and your scream bothers me. Mm. So I'm going to teach you not to scream when I stand on your foot. Which is impossible, it seemingly. Which, yeah, which, and you, you know, if it's, if it's more safe to not scream and endure the pain than it is to scream, then you'll learn not to scream. You will learn to suppress it. You will learn to keep it quiet. You'll learn to keep it inside. Mm -hmm. um, whereas actually where they should be saying, why are they screaming? Oh, I'm stepping on their foot. I'll stop stepping on their foot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. This has been such a great interview, Nanny. I'm really excited <laughs> to share it. I'm like smiling so big. Our listeners can't see my smile, but um, you've shared so many insights today and I'm just, yes, pumped to have everyone listen to your experience. For people um, who are interested in getting in touch um, and I guess also, you know, what's on the horizon for you next? Like you are obviously still a part of Autistic Village. Um, Inside Aut um, is a course that you guys uh, have to support parents. Yeah, it's, it's, the, the, the business is Inside Out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, basically it's, it's what goes on inside our heads um, and teaching parents about what goes on inside our heads. Mm -hmm. um, so the business is Inside Out, www.inside-out.com. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, and... On the horizon, we're going to be doing a course um, which teaches how to, you know, um, which teaches how to spot where autistic stresses are. What what are the autistic stresses? Sensory processing, environment, energy, and you know, past past damage. If something bad has happened to you in the past, you're going to be extremely reactive about it in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of autistic students, unfortunately, have experienced a lot of trauma. Um, and so that can trigger very easily when we have trauma as human beings. And um, really excited for you to share all of your insights with this course. Um, we'll definitely link to all of those websites in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Nanny, for coming on and sharing your experience. It was so powerful. Yeah, thanks. I, I probably talked way too much. I do you tend to? <laughs> no, we wanted you to talk a lot because it's so, it's so insightful to me. Like, I can't tell you how many moments during this interview I had this like aha moments and I'm thinking about students that I'm working with, um, you know, as much as I can learn, um, and try to support my students hearing your perspective and hearing how you share, you know, through metaphor that really, you know, can resonate with people, um, is so, so powerful. And so just like so many things that you shared today, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm thinking about specific students and circumstances. And it just, I'm really excited as a therapist to be able to take everything I've learned from you. Um, and I'm oh, sure. Yeah. All and I mean, you get some funny ones. Um, I mean, we had, 
one teacher that one, one TA who had a her student loved her and then all of a sudden hated her Yikes. she changed her perfume the only way this student recognized her was from her original body wash wow that's wild and so when she changed it and it was a much more pungent one so he found it anxiety inducing as well mm. And I just said, have you changed and you know, have you changed anything like scent or things? She says, Well, I've changed my body wash. I said, change it back and see how it goes. And she, she posted back and she says, I no idea why that works. And I said, Do you want to know? Yeah. Wow. And I think this is a perfect story because so often we have to just go the extra step and do the detective work to figure out what's going on. Um, and I think this is a perfect example of that. Like something as subtle as changing your body wash can be really with a, with sensory systems that are hard to integrate and um, either understimulated or overstimulated, depending on the circumstances. It's just like these things really do make a huge difference. Oh, no, I mean, this is it. I mean, the psychic things and spiky confuses people because people say, well, either there's, you know, they must be sent, if they're sensory seeking, they must be sensory seeking. Mm. And they forget that we are sensory seeking and sensory avoidant. Yeah. And where those spikes are is different for everyone. Mm -hmm. And also, the more stressed we are, the higher those spikes go. So the child who has low interoception but can just about pick up, they need to go to the loop. Mm -hmm. but is in a stressful situation, they're going to have an accident because they've lost the signal. Mm, yeah. It's not, it's not distress. It, it is distress, but it's not caused by distress. It's caused because they've loved their, their sensory is now dropped beyond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I was going to share that we had uh, Chloe Rothschild. She's an autistic adult who was just on the podcast, part-time AAC user. So uses AAC part-time and talks all about interoception and how her AAC system actually helped her really explore her body and understand what was going on in it and then attach that to language. Um, and so I think it's just another good reminder of that is a, a challenge for, for autistic uh, individuals and really, you know, supporting that through, and, you know, yeah. technology and, can yeah. be helpful. As, as a kid, you don't know any of this. So when you know that this sound, you know, you hear the sound of the motor and it is driving you absolutely crazy. And they say, what motor? Right. And you start trying to tell yourself, did I, I was, they didn't hear it. There, it is, there is no motor. So I'm imagining this. Um, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. And you, you said, well, okay, I can't trust my own senses. Yeah. My senses are lying to me. Mm, what a scary experience. It's almost like you're like, am I, 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 we've, I think we've all kind of had an experience where like, am I going crazy here? Like what's going on here? And if that's like your constant experience, then I'm sure that's really overwhelming. Yeah, and you know, it, it, all all parents need to go is okay. It's too hot for you. Yeah, exactly. Seems so simple. It's not too hot for me, but it's hot. It's too hot for you. Yeah, seems so simple, Nanny. Why can't we all get it right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, it, it's all the time. I mean, I um, again, I learned it because my young adult corrected me. 
it was it was one of those situations and i said um you know put your jacket on it's cold and she goes no it's cold for you mm. it's wow. not cold for me so subtle but so important <laughs> right it's like, and I think that that's oftentimes what happens with adults and children, right? Like we just assume and we're like in the caregiver mode and probably that's how we, we were parented, you know? So it's just like being passed down. Um, and then we, yeah, they, they, yeah, they were exceptional on why as well. Uh, <laughs> so, and it, it taught me so much because I go, you have to, you have to get dressed to go to the supermarket. Why? Well, huh. Actually, yeah. that you know, other than not naked, <laughs> there is no reason you can't wear your pajamas to the supermarket. You're not wrong. So if you're comfortable in pajamas, fine, and it means we don't have to fight to to get to the supermarket. Pajamas, it is. <laughs> Sometimes I wear pajamas places too. <laughs> I think we've all been there, like running <laughs> out. But yeah, they taught me so much like that because I had all these rules. I had all these how to be a good parent, which was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, and each time they just went, nope. Um, even even at two, they just go, nope. And if I push, they go, why? Yeah. And, you know, my parents go, oh, you know, they won't understand. You don't waste your time. They're just playing with you. Mm. They're messing with you. But if I explained and it made sense, then they'd agree. If it didn't make sense, then they wouldn't. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. It, but yeah, it's you learn. Yeah. It sounds like that has been a, a really awesome learning experience and, for you. And the, the, the funny thing is that it turns out um, it wasn't until they went away to college mm -hmm. um, that they ceased to have an environment that was set up for them. Mm. So they, got to they, they had to that. live in a neurotypical environment and not an autistic environment that they'd had set up the way that they liked. Mm. And they struggled. And that was when the penny dropped that they were autistic mm. because up to that point, there was no, you know, there was no trauma. There was no distress. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know. Yeah. Wow. It's super interesting. Um, and, and, and they had to learn to look after, you know, I was a, I, I was newly diagnosed. And so I was like, you know, everything I learned, I taught them how to look after their nervous system too mm -hmm. and how to advocate and how to say, okay, no, um, my body clock isn't 9am. I will be here at 11 mm -hmm. because otherwise I will struggle. Mm -hmm. I will stay till seven, mm -hmm. but I need that time. If you're giving me instructions, there needs to be a written format. Mm. Um, I have a red post-it. If the red post-it is on my computer, don't talk to me. Oh, I like that one. I need that one. <laughs> uh, because because if you if you do, I will have to start what I'm doing again, and that's very frustrating for both of us. Mm. And yeah. I won't be able to pay attention to what you're saying because I'm going to be trying to get back to what I'm doing. 
I feel like it's a great lesson in just setting boundaries that yeah. work for us as humans, you know? And that's it. And, and to know you have the right to do it. And this is what we have to teach our children, that they have the right to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, Nanny, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Like you're such a source of wisdom. Uh, but I, I want to respect your time. And also I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing all of this insight. Um, I'm really, really grateful for you taking the time to talk to all of us and I'm really excited to share this episode. Yeah. So for talking with tech, I'm Rachel Mandel, joined by Nanny Ott. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week.